the safest city in America this week? Is it the one where 22,000 extremist armed right-wingers invaded? Yes, indeed, Richmond, Virginia. That needs a follow-up, and it will be followed up here on This Week in Common Sense for the third week of January 2020. Here's Paul Jacob. Well, uh, when it comes to guns, we in Virginia are at ground zero, and uh, all kinds of legislation in, almost every bill, I, I think every bill that would have made uh, gun ownership easier or it was, was supported by people who generally support gun ownership in the Second Amendment has been defeated already. A lot of bills moving, red, red flag bill moving, and other legislation that would make it to where you can only one, buy one handgun, that you wouldn't be able to give a, a gun to or sell a gun to a friend or give it to a family member. And interestingly enough to me, no surprise that there's an outpouring of folks who say, wow, this, you know, this is, is something that strikes at the heart of people who, this is our rights. This is an essential part of the citizens being in control is the citizens being armed. And, you know, I think so often, uh, I think back to Tiananmen Square, I think China is a free and democratic country today, and the world is a tremendously more peaceful and happy and prosperous place if the people in China at that time had had anywhere close one-tenth, one-fiftieth, one-one-hundredth of the personal gun ownership that we have here in the United States of America. If the people in Hong Kong even were armed, they, they might not be able to withstand the Chinese, uh, the CCP, I don't mean all Chinese people, uh, the Communist Chinese Party, uh, which is perhaps not communist, but is totalitarian. And um, they might be able to somehow stamp out uh, their freedoms. There's enough of them and they, you know, over time, but they would have to deal with the whole situation differently. And you think about the, the place that Taiwan is, 100 miles off the coast, uh, an island, they obviously can't withstand China in an all-out war, but they're willing to defend themselves. And China knows that it would pay one heck of a price. And so it does matter. And, and, and uh, it does matter that people are armed, that people can defend themselves. It matters even if you can't beat up the six foot 10, 300 pound bully. It matters that you're willing to throw a punch in how that bully treats you. And I just don't want to disarm people. And I think about, uh, you know, so often I, I talk to people about guns and I, I'm not a big gun person. I've, I've not owned guns. I'm not a big hunter. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how to take them apart, and you know, I can barely open the mail. That's not where I'm coming from. I am coming from the fact that I think it's essential to have private ownership of guns, and that I think today the decisions being made in city councils and, and state houses and the U.S. Capitol are fundamentally different because nowhere in their calculation 
can they calculate that they could just ride roughshod by force over the American people? That just can't enter their, their thinking because it's not true. They can't. We won't let them. And we think about the protections we have from the Constitution. And sometimes we say, hey, we're not going to let you, but we'll wait. The government did it anyway. Uh, or the government trampled on it, and then 10 years later we found out, oh, well, don't do it again, and so on. There's certain things uh, we don't have the power to stop them. But there are certain things in terms of them aggressing against us that they know if they go too far, they have gone too far, and we have the power, real power, not pretend textbook on page 37. I'm talking about real power. And it has an influence right now. And I've, I've talked about gun stuff before, where, where gun issues before, not stuff. But uh, <laughs> where people have said, Paul, what do, you, what do you mean? We're going to be shooting it out? That's not the point. The point of being armed isn't to shoot it out. It's to not have to shoot it out and to not have to take a beating or a robbing or a tyrannizing because the other person knew you were armed and knew they could not get away with it. And, and so that, to me, that's the Second Amendment. And I think that's why I, I'm not upset that they've outlawed machine guns. I don't want private people to own tanks or flamethrowers or nuclear weapons. I don't think that that's necessary. I don't think it's unreasonable or violates the Second Amendment for those things to be illegal. I do, and obviously there's a lot of room between that and you know a Glock or something, but I do think that the gun that gets the most flack these days is an AR-15. And that an AR-15 is today what the musket was in revolutionary times. <clears throat> and to me, it's important that private people be able to own an AR-15 because if it's not the kind of offensive weapon that people are going to, you know, take over uh, everything, but it is a powerful enough weapon that a group of people could defend themselves against very powerful forces. And, and that could take place if there was some emergency and boy, things went wild and there were gangs of people or something. Then seven men and women armed in that way could protect, you know, a huge neighborhood. That is the, exactly the sort of weapon that I want private people to own in this country. And I think it has helped us every day of my life. I have been helped by the fact that my, the people making policy in my government could not even imagine that they could simply impose their will by force. That's what we're trying to keep. You don't ever hear that talked about on TV. It's never explained in that way, it seems. It's, and, and of course, the flip side of this is how ridiculous all these different bills are. Anybody who's serious about it knows that they're not gonna stop any of these mass shootings. They're really not gonna do much of anything. It is a, a sort of, our team wins, the anti-gun team won, or the pro-gun team won. It has no impact on anybody's life if they're not playing along at home. 
And trust me, increasingly people are not playing along at home. So, you know, that this, this whole charade is politics, but it continues, I think, to wear down the essential idea behind the Second Amendment. And I think it's, it's really important that people explain it to other people and that we talk about it. And it's really important for folks who are not hunters and not, you know, into guns to recognize the importance of guns. I believe that my daughters have a better, more equal chance in this world because somebody invented guns. It's interesting. I had somebody on Facebook suggest that somehow people whose skin is, is called white, even though it's kind of pinkish, tannish, uh, there really needs to be a better skin color for our skin color because white just does, anyway, especially when your hair turns white. You're not white at that point. I mean, your yeah. hair is off white, is my preferred term. <laughs> yeah, off white? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just off. But yeah. uh, no, it, it's this whole idea that somehow, you know, it was, it, there was some racial component, which of course is what I think Governor Northam who of course is the guy who on his, on his uh, medical school yearbook on his private personal page, not private, personal page, that is controlled by him, believably. <laughs> he had a picture of someone in blackface standing next to someone in a KKK robe. You know, that's about as offensive as you can get. He apologized, then of course he said, oh, I don't think it was me. There was an investigation uh, by a law firm hired by the medical school, which was inconclusive. And it seemed which Northern wasn't that cooperative with. Uh, so the whole thing, you know, forget about that for a moment, but that's kind of where the, the backdrop of all this. And so he suggests that there are racists, militia, and of course you can be in a militia and not be a racist that we shouldn't pretend those are the same things. They're not, they could be obviously, but they're, they're not always. And they arrested three people in Maryland who were talking about coming and maybe causing trouble. And so it's, it's not illegitimate to say, hey, we're worried there could be some trouble and try to create some sort of system that's gonna minimize that. This is a rally that happens every year same date every year because it's a good it's a it's a day that people are off but the legislature's on so the gun folks the virginia uh, citizen defense league holds their lobby day every year at this time and they've had you know they've had as many before as 10,000 this year it was 22,000 uh but they've had other years where they had a thousand or what have you but they've been doing it for a long time never any problems and easy to find so they could be talked to to say, hey, here's, here's the problems. That's not what happened. Instead, the whole event in the media, all, all you heard was gun rally, white supremacist, white nationalist, racist, like Charlottesville. Charlottesville was, was not a gun rally. It was a right-wing kind of neo-Nazi rally. And it was people saying, we like, Confederate statues, and it was people saying, these people are Nazis, get the heck out of here. On both sides, people from other places, as well as from Charlottesville. But it, 
but it's the, it's the sort of thing where all this history gets so completely distorted and then repeated in distortion a zillion times. And, and of course, on my Facebook page, someone suggested that we shouldn't even go to Richmond because white people going to a city that is, I believe, 54% black uh, is somehow not allowed or what? I mean, it's just, in, it, it, this is insanity. And so <laughs> the graphic for this particular commentary shows a, a black guy, looks like, a, like somebody you wouldn't want to mess with, who's, who has a cap that says, make America great, again, a Trump cap, is holding up a shirt that's, that has a, a automatic or semi-automatic assault rifle and says, come and take it. And then the kicker, here's the kicker to me, he's got a cigarette coming out of his mouth. So he's so politically incorrect that not only is he for Trump, and, and for Trump when, you know, you're not allowed to be for whoever you want if you're black. That seems to be the message that we continue to be, uh, be told. And, uh, and, and, you know, he, he's incorrect in that way. He's incorrect in that he's for gun rights. And then, my goodness, just to rub it in, he's got a cigarette in his mouth. Anyway, it's, uh, there were quite a few pictures uh, from the rally. And it was largely white, but boy, were there a lot of people of all different colors. One of my favorite pictures was a picture of an, a young Asian woman with the sign that said something to the effect of, am I really a white supremacist? <laughs> and, and I think that's the, I think we have to kind of laugh at some of this. It's, it's not funny because I think it does distort and and uh, and screw up our society, um, but it's it's uh, it deserves to be laughed at. It's silly, and and my goodness, if it, it the worst thing it could do would be to start people thinking about their race. I mean, the, all this we we did commentaries months ago when I can't remember who it was that that uh, came out and said vote like your like, you know, like you look in the mirror. In other words, vote for your, for me, it'd be vote for someone who's got white hair or, you know, <laughs> vote for maybe not the prettiest person. No, but it was vote for the person that's your same color or vote. I think the New York Times endorsing two women as if it's, you know, it's time to elect a woman. We really have to get past all this tokenism. It's just ridiculous. And, and that's not to say that if there are barriers, that there aren't still some barriers and that they can't be overcome and shouldn't be overcome. But, you know, tokenism doesn't overcome any barriers. It just sets up new ones. It's, it's really, um, and, and to see all that kind of pushed into this gun debate is, uh, maybe it shows that their arguments on guns aren't so good. They had to kind of switch to something else. They're going to find out that lots of women are getting guns. So there's a lot of armed people out there, and those armed Democrats are probably going to be increasingly less enamored of the leaders. I'll tell you, I, I, I tell you, maybe, maybe the gun control bills that need to start getting introduced are that no armed people can be in the Capitol. Uh, no private 
security details can work for elected officials. I mean, if, if guns are bad and we just can't trust, I mean, who can we not trust more right. <laughs> than elected officials? And maybe we're not worried about them shooting us. Uh, although, you know, I could, I could probably suggest some ways that that could happen, but, but we do have to worry about them not being trustworthy. It, it's almost anything they suggest in terms of we need to do this because somehow we have doubts about our neighbors. You have to realize that your neighbors, I don't care what neighborhood you live in, your neighbors have got to be more trustworthy than the Congress. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've said that about, you know, the draft or some national service program. Um, I think maybe we ought to make that on everything. If the more the, the laws apply to them, uh, the better the laws are gonna be for us. And, and nowhere is that more true than in the, the, on the gun issue where they're telling people in rough neighborhoods that somehow they shouldn't have a gun to protect themselves when they know darn good and well that the police cannot get there quickly enough to take care of them and are not likely to, even if they could possibly get there, they're not likely to get there. And then at the same time, they've got huge security details to where they don't ever have to touch a gun because we're paying a bunch of money so that people with guns are protecting them. Look, if, if uh, they'll buy me you know, all the protection and every American gets a security detail, then we're, we're copacetic. But anyway, that's this, this issue, I've had several uh, more liberal friends uh, who are, are, don't agree with me on the issue. Um, but I think, I, I think they're looking at it in other ways too, who have suggested this is not a good issue, you know, because it's, it splits people. And most of my issues are more, uh, democracy process, uh, you know, even, even things like the Taxpayer Bill of Rights is about the process where citizens would have the control on spending. And so it's a huge, I think, uh, issue for me and important reform that needs to happen. It's only happened really in Colorado, uh, at least fully. And, and yet uh, it's not just a tax issue or a spending issue, it's a governance issue. And so I'm more focused on those. But this is a governance issue too. And because it's so much, because I think so often the, the thrust of the issue doesn't get talked about, which is this is designed to fight the government. And I don't mean fight in the, hey, we're gonna shoot it out with them every afternoon. Nobody wants that. Uh, this is designed to present the government with a fait accompli. We are armed. We have created you. You are armed. We want you to be a monopoly on physical force, at least the level of physical force enough or a monopoly enough, and maybe monopoly isn't the right term, but to have enough physical force to be able to overpower any private force in our society so that we're protected, except for our society as a whole. If you ever go against a huge segment of our society, because we have faith in the, in the decency and the goodness and the common sense of the people as a whole. If, if we don't have faith in that, if, if the people as a whole are rotten, there's no government, there's no possible government that's going to make everything okay. We do have faith and, and experience. It's not blind faith, it's experience that Americans are decent people, not that there's not a percentage or two or six that are, that are rotten, lazy, no goods who might rob you if you're not careful. You know, keep your, 
keep your uh, hand on your billfold. But the vast majority of people are good, and that is why we want society to have that power to be armed, because we know we're arming the ultimate defense against, against badness and evil and tyranny. You know, the other one early in the week that we did, I think is a, is a uh, important commentary, the gig is up. And uh, talking about the gig economy and what's happened in California. And I believe that's uh, Assembly Bill 5, isn't it? It is. I'm, I'm about 99% sure. Uh, and I just went there and it is. Um, but it's, it is a bill that has basically, in essence, outlawed being an independent contractor. And of course, I've worked with a lot of people who do freelance work and, and uh, in politics. You have a lot of people who, are, who aren't working for one outfit. They're doing a lot of different things. Petitioners. Uh, this bill in California has been devastating to the petition industry. And there's, they're in court, just like other people are, trying to, trying to stop it. And it basically is trying to turn everyone into an employee because I guess the, the kind of Democratic Party creed is everyone should be an employee. They shouldn't run their own affairs. They shouldn't be an independent person out there. And maybe then we can unionize more of them and then maybe more of them will vote for us or whatever. But it's, it's stupid on the economy and it has been devastating to people who are trying to earn a living um, because a lot of times, especially national outfits, uh, if you're in California and all of a sudden, hey, I can't take as much work because if I do, then you have to hire me as an employee. And why should we hire this guy as an employee in California when all the other 49 states, we can hire people who, who don't live under an economically insane uh, political environment. And, and we are going to talk more about this because there is, I found out, legislation in Congress that would make our whole country like California, where you can't really be an independent contractor. Now, there are, there are times where you want to look out to, to how big companies could pressure or you know, powerful economic forces could, could push people around. This is not powerful economic forces pushing people around. This is the government pushing people into the categories that the government thinks you should be in because those are the categories that help them the most. And it's just, it, it's outrageous and it's, it's not ending in California. It's not being mocked enough. And it, it strikes me that it, it sort of takes us to another commentary this week, which just the title of it. We went back and forth on the title so many times, but the title is Next Ski Trick App Flap. And, uh, and basically, and, and boy, is this not just emblematic of the way our government and economy work together. In Colorado, you've got all these people trying to go from Denver to the slopes. They want to ski. So they've got to spend money. They're driving. There's traffic. There's, you know. So someone comes up with an app. What is it? Uh, Treadshare. Treadshare. Tread and basically sharing your tread, 
you can sign up with this app. You can take people. They'll pay you a, some, a little something to defray the cost. They get up to the mountains cheaper. This company that puts you guys together so seamlessly, they make money. They might hire somebody. Someone might mow their yard who makes money. It's a wonderful world out there. And the best part is the roads aren't as clogged. So if you have nothing to do with the mountains at all and you're just driving through, you've been helped by these people you don't even know. And, of course, less cars on the road mean that climate change, which I, I think we're at, what, nine years, seven months? I mean, there's only so much time left. And so uh, before we get chewed out again by Greta. And, uh, and so, you know, this would help. But lo and behold, they are immediately sent a cease and desist leader. They're no sooner up and successful in helping people that they are shut down and denied the chance to help people because they needed to pay over $100,000 to get a license and they would have to get a criminal background check on every driver driving up to the mountains and back. So it's just, you know, and, and people, I think they look at this and say, well, it's fine for these, these new startups that are making everyone's life better. They kind of sometimes forget that, as opposed to the government that's never done that for anybody hardly. Anyway, a few times. They are, uh, you know, they, they kind of suggest, well, they should, you know, have to follow all the same rules. Instead of looking at it and realizing they're not set up in the same way, and hey, why don't we use this opportunity to look at the rules? Why do, you know, I don't think it's uh, outrageous for some taxi cab driver in New York City to say, hey, wait, how come Uber doesn't have to, uh, you know, follow the same rules I do? And some people say, yes, they should. No one should follow those stupid rules. No one should have to just pay a bunch of money to the government to be able to start helping us. I mean, it, it it's like if someone found a way to help little old ladies or men, because um, I might need some help soon, uh, take their groceries in. Do we need police to just swarm down on them and like get them in a chokehold until we make sure that they've, they've paid their licenses? Should there be a license to have to, you know, to do that? It seems to me that increasingly what we're seeing is that because of the internet, we are able, and the, the quickness of communications, we are able to cooperate in ways that we could not before. And so these businesses rely on cooperation. And I look at it a little bit like I look at commuting into DC. I thank goodness do not have to commute into DC very often at all. I don't, I, for 10 years, I drove in every day, five days a week, if not six. In commuting in all these times, I didn't make use of this very often, but lots of people never, ever drove into town. They went to where people um, drove their cars to carpool, and they would park their car, and they would wait, and people would pull up, and the people pulling up would say, I'm going downtown, I'm going to the Pentagon, which is on the Virginia side of the Potomac River, not in DC, but just next to DC. 
Uh, I'm going to Lafont Plaza. That was where I was going when I did take it, uh, which is, is close to downtown. And, uh, and, and so then people would get into their cars and give them the three people to allow them to go on the hub lanes, the high occupancy vehicle lanes. And I remember when we first got to this area, you know, my wife and I talking about, geez, I wonder you know, have they ever had any incidents? And I think there had, there's been one or two incidents of somebody trying to, you know, kidnap somebody or whatever uh, in what must be 30 plus years uh, of it happening and maybe more, that, but 30 that I'm aware of. And in essence, it's, it's actually, it would be pretty hard to do that because you've got one person in the car, you've got three other people who, you know, are not likely to, anyway, it, it, I won't go through all the dynamics, but to suffice it to say, this works to everybody's advantage, everybody's advantage. No government bureaucrat had to set it up. No company set it up, so nobody earned a profit on it either. But boy, it's the kind of thing, if a company could think of, <laughs> they would have set it up and they would have charged a tiny amount. Um, when, when you think about this thing in, in uh, going to the mountains in Colorado, these guys are gonna make money. The people who are driving up there are now going to get paid to drive up there, or at least get up there for almost free. The other people who didn't have a good way to get up there and were paying $100 to get up there by Uber are now paying 15 It's a win, win, win. And the government shuts it down. They're shutting down cooperative businesses. In, you know, and, and so many people, oh, capitalism is so competitive. Well, you know, competition is good too. But here we're seeing again and again that cooperative nature of the economy taking off and being shut down. It's, it's time that we demanded government get into the 21st century instead of, instead of demanding that we go back to the 18th. I've been recently thinking of conspiratorial angles to everything, and one of them is, why would governments do this? Well, one reason a government might want to shut down widespread cooperation is that the argument for government is that widespread cooperation is hard to do. So the more we have widespread cooperation uh, on a private or communal or, in this case, internet basis, the less there's need for government. And you know, if I were a person in government, I might actually find this to be slightly disturbing. And it's a, it is a direct competition to government. I, I think you're right about that, but it, it, it's the nature, it, the nature of resisting change, especially when you see yourself at the controlling element, the executive element of an institution, it could be a club or a church or a company or a government, um, it's often you start to not like any ideas that came from somewhere else um, because you're not sure where they're gonna end up and you wanna be in charge of everything. The folks, I think at the, at the tops of almost any organization, there's kind of, and it's like the iron law of oligarchy is I think what they call it in political science, but it's that they tend to want to be internal and, and, and push, they don't push the power down, they push it all to them and control it and hug it and don't let it go. 
but especially when you think about um, our government, the more, the, uh, the way you get beyond that problem is that we're supposed to have people representing us. And if people in government are thinking about, and, and I know, you know, we're not gonna live in an ideal, we can pass all kinds of reforms and life isn't gonna be fantasy, but the ideal is that you'd have citizen legislators who would then return to live under the laws they make. And the closer we get to that ideal, the better, because it, on, on issues like this, someone in my place in this society immediately looks at this and says, look, don't take two seconds to think about whether these companies should be able to exist and to help people Start thinking about why you're kneecapping the companies that have been around for a long time. It's like uh, it, it. It's like sometimes when they're giving subsidies to big companies to attract them in. You know, I'm always thinking, what about the companies that are already there that have been doing all these jobs, and you're basically upping their taxes to help somebody else? The more it seems to me that the people making the decisions live with the rest of us, the less likely this sort of thing is to happen to where we just can't mesh economic progress with new rules because there's too many people at the Capitol who don't have a clue about what's happening. And I think anytime you see hearings in Washington, especially about anything that, you know, new technology, meaning in the last 50 to 100 years, they, they're completely clueless. And so they don't understand these things. And of course, they're listening to people who write campaign checks. And so, of course, we're going to get a, it, that natural tendency to, you know, not share power is going to be even more that way if you're somehow removed from and, and isolated even more by the process. On the other hand, if you're living in the real world, you'd be going into Congress realizing this is a huge problem. These, these apps and these different things, this is running the economy. These are good things. They're not perfect. They're going to have problems too, but you know, the, there's no solution to, Hey, we're got to keep, we've got to keep progress slow. <laughs> that's, that's not the way into the, you know, that's as Bill Clinton would say, that's uh, when you get over the bridge to the 21st century going slow, is not really the answer. Speaking of uh, going slow or, or you know, maybe going off the cliff, what about reality 2020? You mean reality TV 2020? Reality TV 2020, that's right. You and I have talked about, you know, this is sometimes, you know, you see something in the news and, and what we try to do with common sense is comment on, on things in the news, even maybe stories that aren't huge stories that we think are important because they talk about, you know, they relate to other things that are big that are happening. And, and then, you know, sometimes there's something that it's like you've wanted to say for a long time and you, you know, you finally, I get a chance in common sense to say it or, or tell some old story or something. But oftentimes there's like something I've wanted to say but just, and I started, I think I started this commentary about seven times. And, uh, and, and we discussed this whole issue uh, of this 2020 election is 
is more insane than the last election. In 2016, you had uh, a man win the presidency who days before the election had a majority of, of folks, 61%, who viewed him negatively. 61% of the people viewed him negatively. He wins the election. And of course, we make the point, how can that happen? Well, the, his alternative was Hillary Clinton. And of course, she didn't have quite as high a negatives, but she actually had two thirds of people who didn't trust her. Um, and so he ends up winning. And of course, she got more votes, but he won through the Electoral College, which is how the, the rules are. And, and um, anyway, it's, it's, you would think, okay, so four years later, if this guy still has huge negatives, and it, they're not 61% anymore, but they're 53, 54%. Um, he's just not going to be able to win. Now the Democrats, you know, they've impeached him. He's got to go through this trial in the Senate. He's probably going to be acquitted, of course, but still it's not good PR. Uh, and the Democrats can pick anybody they want. And yet it looks like such an incredible mess. And we had a good time because, you know, this week, uh, Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders kind of called each other liars and then confronted each other, but didn't. And, and it just looked very silly. And I think Elizabeth Warren, even more so kind of confronting him after the debate and saying, Hey, I think you call me a liar on national television. And then Bernie says, well, let's talk about it later. And then that's it. And it's kind of like, I hope, I hope that you don't, we don't need you as president to, you know, forcefully interject in some situation because you're going to say, hey, this is an act of war. And they're going to go, hey, we'll, we'll talk about it later. And, you know, you're just out of luck. Uh, so that wasn't very good. It remind, actually, when I think of that, it reminds me of Bernie, uh, the Black Lives Matter folks, uh, Bern, taking over Bernie's, Bernie's uh, podium in, in uh, Seattle. I, I one time had somebody try to take my podium in Oklahoma City. And uh, I had some help from my brother, who was, uh, who was about six feet away from me and then right next to me, <laughs> so that I could continue my speech as both of us uh, were holding him off. But anyway, uh, uh, politics is a funny, funny business. In this election, I, here's, here's why I think it's so crazy. You've got Joe Biden, who is the front runner or has been, Sanders is kind of overtaking him now, but Biden, who most times I see him interviewed or in a debate, he just doesn't look with it. He just doesn't seem sharp. This is not, you know, this isn't who we're going to roast or, or, you know, take to dinner and say, hey, thanks for all your service. This is president of the United States. And, and so I, I just think he, he has a tough time because I don't think he's up to the job. I'm not sure he ever was personally, but I think even if you did, I think now he just doesn't seem to be with it. And of course, you know, he's got a lot of baggage from, you know, the, the Clinton era crime bill, um, from his vote for the Iraq war. Um, anyway, I just don't see him winning and yet he's been he's still right up there at the top latest polls sanders has started to overtake him nationally as we mentioned in the commentary and 
Sanders is funny because, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, I almost would rather have Sanders than any of the rest of them because I think he's almost halfway honest. Uh, he's a socialist who, you know, couldn't wait to go honeymoon in the old Soviet Union, which he thought was kind of a pretty swell place. He was very impressed with their, with their uh, subway system. It is a nice subway system. I do have to say that. Uh, gulags, not as nice, but the subways, hey. And, um, and you know, loves Cuba. And, and I just think, you know, in essence, this will be the first socialist communist. Um, because he comes off as not a communist, but sympathetic. And, um, and so that's a huge problem. And yet he's surging now. Elizabeth Warren, I think, has, has just not... You know, it's, it's funny because I think she got into first place in some of the polls months ago by talking issues day after day after day and having policies and doing the hard work of, of explaining, here's how we can do things better. Now, I, don't, I didn't think her ex explanations added up, but that's what helped her. And then, of course, someone says, well, how do you pay for that? And all of a sudden... You know, Bernie says, hey, we're going to raise people's taxes. They'll love it. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I think, had advisors said, don't say that. And all of a sudden, she doesn't seem plausible. She doesn't seem like she knows what she's talking about. And for someone who misses issues, all of a sudden, that's a, that's a problem. Um, and, you know, it's funny because my, my sense is that she's wanted, she's got advisors telling her that she needs to be likable. There's been this whole woman thing about, well, people don't like women. If they're, if they're too smart, they're a bitch. Or if they're this, they're that. And I don't think that that's really very accurate. Um, I'm sure that there are all kinds of, you know, sex-based attitudes and different things that affect it all. But I think at the end of the day, people recognize authenticity. And I say this when Elizabeth Warren, who strikes me as kind of a nerd, and maybe she's not, maybe she's just playing to our biases, but when she was being the nerd, people could like that. They could, even I could say, you know, I don't agree with any of the crap you're saying, but at least you're talking about issues and I have some respect for that. Her grabbing a beer, which was one of these early, you know that that was some stupid advisor who, or a group of them probably, who said, this will make you seem like an author. They did some stupid focus group and they weren't intelligent enough to kind of say they're running the country, but they weren't intelligent enough to kind of realize, well, people are real. They want to see someone, if, if you're, you know, if you're Trump, let's say Trump decided he was going to start being Mr. Nice Guy he loses the next election because people say, I don't buy it. I saw you as this other guy. In other words, they, there's something about being authentic. It's what I think helps Bernie so much. It's why he is so popular. He's more popular with young people than Pete Buttigieg, who is a young people. And, uh, and, and I think it's because they see him as authentic. Now, he, I think, probably still gets beat in a general election because he's a socialist, an authentic socialist, but it, it, there's something there. And then I think it, you, you look at, at uh, all of that and then realize as much as there's this, what I call the cluster yuck, 
which I'm so proud of because I wanted to say the other word because that's what it is. But I can't say the other word, of course. And then I came up with a way to say it in a nice, it's like, it's like Disney meets Lenny Bruce. You know, I brought them together. Anyway, the cluster yuck that is the Democrats and the impeached, unpopular president who increasingly seems very reelectable. And then you've got Bloomberg out there spending a lot of money. Everybody's seeing him on the tube. They're listening to him. He's not on the ballot in Iowa or New Hampshire or even South Carolina. And yet he could be a factor in this, especially because it's so split up. You've got four people at the top. You could have, you know, and, and Iowa could have two winners because for the first time, you know, Iowa's always been a caucus state. So you might have 14% of the people going in and then come out with nothing because your people ended up caucusing with others and there's a certain threshold, I believe it's 15%. And, but this year they're going to take a poll as people come in, people will vote. So there'll be this initial poll. And if someone can claim they won that, that's big. And then of course is all the getting together and anybody who's below that 15% threshold if you attend the caucus, let's say you're, you know, you're with uh, Klobuchar and you're at 12%, well, all of a sudden you're free to go to Sanders or Warren or Biden or whoever. So um, there'll be a winner at the end who has the most delegates. And, and so you could have two split winners, then you've got New Hampshire. And it, you know, it's also interesting, and there hasn't been much said about this. I mean, there, it is, but it's never said by the candidates because they're afraid they lose in Iowa and New Hampshire. But you do have two states that are both have very low minority populations deciding who is going to have the momentum after the first couple things. And that's, that's huge. And there's, there's probably, you know, it's very difficult to change because the folks in Iowa and New Hampshire really like that power and they do not want it to change. And so as a candidate, if you suggest changing it, they are going to, you're going to lose in Iowa or New Hampshire. So that's a little bit of a funny thing. We should, um, we should end up talking about the last uh, commentary of the week, which is anything but funny. And that is about the uh, coronavirus and what's happening in China now. And I have a thing on my wall, which are 10 stoic uh, sayings or principles. And one of them is, I'm looking at it right now, out of the corner of my eye, is uh, death is knocking at your door. And it is, it is. And... You know, you just, you never know what's going to happen. It, we could have a, you know, we could not be here as a human race in two months um, or tomorrow uh, if some asteroid hit or whatever. And, and so it's, it's uh, you know, asteroid hits, there's not much we can do about it. But some of these things, there are things we can do about it. We can protect ourselves. And that's, that's what I encourage people to do is to take these things seriously and, and be independent and, and so you're not dependent on somebody else and, and do the right stuff. Have, 
have water in your house, have a little extra rice, uh, have a little extra foodstuffs and, and the ability to do some things. I've, uh, my wife and I have been debating about whether to buy a generator and it, it just seems like something you shouldn't have to go out and buy, but uh, maybe, maybe it is something we have to go out and buy. The other thing though is what was interesting is, is uh, when, when we put that commentary to bed, of course we added some footnotes just because the story was moving. But I think one angle on the story is the fact that it's taking place, you know, the, the point of contagion, uh, I guess is a way to say it, uh, is in China. And there is, I think, some fear that, that the transparency that you might get in some countries from the government in terms of what's happening and where it started and how, what's the extent of the problem and what has been done or not done to, you know, to protect against it. In a more totalitarian society, you're going to get less information from the government. The government's going to get less information from people who are scared to death that if they say the wrong thing, they're going to be in trouble. And, uh, and so that's, that's always an issue. But uh, it's, it's scary. It's scary to see how it's already spread um, to the United States, to other Asian countries. In this day and age, there's just so much travel that, that it is. And of course, this is happening with the Chinese Lunar New Year. And I didn't realize until basically this, this year what, that that's the biggest migration of people uh, at any time in, in the year. The biggest migration in the world is all of the people because it's traditional to go home and, and be with your family. And so it's kind of like a Thanksgiving uh, attitude in the U.S. that you're always trying to get back to your family. And so there's a huge migration of millions and millions of people. I mean, China's 1.3 billion. Uh, places like Taiwan are, are 23 million. Uh, these are not tiny population places. And, um, and so this is a real problem when you've got all that movement. And of course, another problem, uh, there was an article that I saw today, the World Health Organization, under pressure from China, when Taiwan was quick to report that they had their first case, the World Health Organization listed it as Taiwan, China, and listed it as a Chinese case, and won't talk to the medical people in Taiwan and won't let the medical people from Taiwan go to a conference to learn about this. That's not only stupid and evil in terms of, you know, potentially harming the people of Taiwan, that's stupid and evil in terms of potentially harming the whole world. This is a, I mean, that's politics over medicine and, and why? because the biggest totalitarian bully on the block is telling the UN what to do. So, I mean, it's, that's, uh, it's a, it's a heck of a way to end, but I don't know that I have a whole lot left to say. Well, maybe we should just get out of the UN. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, uh, as a kid, I remember a lot of the, uh, uh, get out of the, get the U S out of the UN, uh, bumper stickers and so on. And then I remember when I was uh, uh, either a young 20 something or maybe 19 or something, I saw someone who had a button that said, get the U.S. out of North America, uh, which I thought was quite funny. Um, 
I think he meant U.S. government, not the, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of landmass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Truck yeah. somewhere else. I'll tell you, the, um, here's maybe one note, uh, just going back to the 2020 election. After the 2016 election, it was, I mean, just ask Hillary Clinton, it was everybody's fault. Whoever you voted for, it was your fault. This election year, this is my personal get out of, you know, political jail free card. Vote for whoever you think is the least evil. You know, in libertarian circles, there's always talk about, you know, uh, the lesser of two evils. Well, the lesser of two evils is better than the worser of two evils. And, and I'm not suggesting don't vote libertarian. I'm going to vote for the person who I think is the best person. If I think someone good has a chance to win, I might alter that a little bit. But I am not going to give anybody a hard time about calculating things differently. I think if you voted for Hillary Clinton because you were afraid of Donald Trump, I think you made a mistake, but I understand. I understand completely. If you voted for Donald Trump because you were scared of Hillary Clinton, I think, I mean, if, if you have to choose one over the other, I think you probably made the right choice. I don't, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I understand you were trying to protect yourself from Hillary Clinton. That's a, a legitimate thing to do. If you voted for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson or somebody else, it's, you know, this is every four years we're forced to make this choice that's not much of a choice. And we ought to, any anger you have about somebody making a choice you think was the wrong choice, save it up and give it to somebody who's in charge of creating our election system because they are the people who are giving you and your neighbors these horrible, horrible choices or lack thereof. And stop being mad at your neighbor for, you know, being in a gunfight holding only a, you know, a pen knife or a, you know, or a stick or something and, and trying to defend themselves. That's kind of how I feel about that. It's just, it's, it's, I, I see it all the time and it's, it's, uh, it's not our fault. <laughs> yeah, we're trapped. I mean, yes. that's, that's the thing is we're trapped. The thing I usually add into this, though, is a little bit different. Uh, it's, it's, and it's not a conspiracy theory. This, this is, this is pure, pure economics. My vote, your vote, no single person's vote determines an election. Therefore, altering your vote one way doesn't determine the election. It is not effective in terms of your productivity, the, 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 what it produces. So the reason you vote for something isn't because you're trying to affect a change. It's because you're trying to send a signal. And so at that, at that point, I just wonder what is the signal you're trying to send? And I think that's what we should be concerned about because the trap is to think that our vote counts. Our vote matters to politicians, but it doesn't count for us <laughs> unless we make it count by voting our conscience or some signal. Yes, yes. And it's why there are times where I think um, there, there are times where I think it's really important 
to vote for a third party candidate. For instance, this last election, my biggest disappointment was not the vote total that Gary Johnson and, and Bill Weld got. Two guys, both of whom I like, um, but the fact that they ran a campaign that didn't make that vote count very much. It didn't, the people who voted for them voted, I think largely as a protest, not just because they were in that mood anyway, because they didn't like the R and the D, but because they never gave them enough, of, enough meat on the bones of what libertarianism and liberty we were talking about for them to feel better about their vote. And, and I think you're right that, that when we can vote for someone that is sending a message. For instance, I could vote for Tulsi Gabbard uh, for president. Now, I have to say that would just horrify me, just scare me to death. I don't want to over, maybe horrify is too, too strong a word, but I would vote for her because she is so good on foreign policy in which almost everybody else is so bad um, that I think it would, it would send that message at least. Um, but, and, and if she's still around and the Democratic primary happens here, that's, that's what I will do. But it's, um, it's not that I'm agreeing with everything she's for, it's sending that message. And I think that, I, I think a lot of people have to look at, when people, uh, one, of, one of my pet peeves is people talking about the Trump voters and that they, you know, as if they know these people. I mean, this is 60 million different people. I don't think you've met them all. And I know so many Trump voters who voted for Trump liking him to send a message against the establishment. And I know so many Trump voters who didn't like him, never liked him, and voted the same way to send the same message. And, and my biggest problem with Trump the whole time is that except when I was reading the Washington Post in the morning, I could never quite believe he was an outsider. Because, you know, he's, he wrote checks to politicians, he did deals, uh, economic deals that needed eminent domain and different city money and, and all kinds of things. He was wrapped up in politics, so I never saw him as an outsider, except when I read my Washington Post, um, attacking him mercilessly. And, and so that, I think you really are onto something there in terms of how much it, it is a message. And, and I think, again, we're trying to do the best we can. It's why I love initiative and referendum, where instead of trying to decide whether, you know, this blow-dried person with a picture of his family and his dog is more honest than this blow-dried person with a different dog and a also a very nice family in the picture. With initiative and referendum, you're dealing with actual issues, language that's set, they can't cheat you and lie about it and put different language in. Um, and so it's, it, you know, there's something really, really uh, nice about that. And sometimes initiatives and referendum are, are treated as divisive because you can win with 51% while in legislatures, you have to deliberate and you have to negotiate and, and, and think about everybody's interest and get it all together and compromise and come out with something. And you know, if it's a nice story, but you think about the legislatures, you know, think about your state legislature, think about the Congress. 
Is that how it works? Are they negotiating? When they passed Obamacare without a Republican vote, was that because they were negotiating and weighing everything? And then, and don't get me wrong, Republicans have done the same sorts of thing. The idea that somehow when politicians do it, I mean, we have these, we have these ridiculous uh, myths about how these legislatures, you know, it's like oftentimes you'll have people talk about, well, but so-and-so legislator, you know, Senator Smith, he's an expert on something. And when they say that, you know, this is a person who works for Senator Smith because nobody else would ever suggest that Senator Smith is some expert on anything. So, I mean, they can pretend this, but anyway, we're going to go another half hour if we're not careful, but uh, just know, choose your, your choice for president has already been approved, pre-approved by me. And I know that's important to everyone out there. They were waiting for that message. See, we've sent a message. I should run for president. Thank you for tuning in to This Week in Common Sense. Paul Jacob has been writing commentary on thisiscommonsense.com since 1999. And This Week in Common Sense is his weekend recap of the stories of the week. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud, YouTube, and other venues. You can find me at, at Workman, that's Workman with an I, not an O, on most social media. Thank you. It was right after I got out of jail for refusing to register for the draft, uh, a reporter said something about running for office, and it was like, no, no, and then later someone said, oh, you should, you should. And they turned to my wife and said, don't you think he should run? And she said, oh, I don't know, but who would his wife be? <laughs>